This episode of the Bible for Normal People is brought to you by Baker Academic. Find out how Baker Academic serves the academy and the church, as well as browsing some of their latest releases by going to bakeracademic.com slash ends. You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome all you normal people back to the podcast. Today our question is, what's the practical value of the Old Testament? I think, None. Pete, yeah, you're getting tired of your job, so this is really <laughs> comes from you questioning existential crisis. What am I doing? <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm ruining people's lives. Uh. So we are talking actually with Ellen Davis, who I was really excited to talk with. She is a professor of Bible and practical theology actually at Duke Divinity School. Yeah, and she's sort of you know, bridges a gap between academic work and practical work, and there's just like no barrier for her. It's like almost like it's an extension of one big thing, which is, you know, not often the way people talk about it. Is, sometimes there's a big wall between academic work and preaching, but not for her. So she's really interested in practical stuff. Yeah, my, act, my introduction to Ellen Davis was from friends who were really big into farming, and agriculture, mm. and that's actually where they knew her from and introduced her to me. Wow, it's almost as if she's connected to life somehow. <laughs> I've read about that in a book. I don't really know what that looks like. I do cut my grass. Anyway, I have, I have so much to learn. You do. I really do. I'm working on it. So Anyway, um, Ellen's written a bunch of books, of course, and uh, one book that, that might be known by, uh, to some people is The Art of Reading Scripture, which is a book that she edited with a colleague of hers, uh, Richard Hayes, and uh, a biblical prophecy by which she, she means, as another book, biblical prophecy, not predicting the future, but what do prophets do and what relevance does that have for contemporary theology and discipleship and ministry? And those yeah. are really important topics. The subtitle for that one is Christian Theology, Discipleship, and Ministry, right. which is really nice because a lot of books on prophecy, that wouldn't be the subtitle. Right. How do the prophets connect to discipleship and ministry? And you know, she's also, not to go on of this, but you know, she's so unusual, at least you know, for, for my experience and for my world, but she, she's a theological consultant within the Anglican communion. She's a lifelong Episcopalian. And uh, since 2004, she's worked with the Episcopal Church of Sudan and South Sudan to develop theological education, community health, and sustainable agriculture. Now, if that's not practical, right. I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, and what drives her is her, her faith in Christ and her understanding of what the Bible is and how the Bible is used and what the Bible points us toward. So that's, it's fun to have her on the podcast. Yeah, so let's get our conversation again, our topic. What's the practical value of the Old Testament? We're talking with uh, Professor Ellen Davis. A community that exists over a period of time, which is to say a tradition, has to learn to live with disagreement. These debates are not finally resolved. The Old Testament doesn't end by saying, okay, these several things you need to get really clear on. The argument goes on. And I think this is something that Christians can learn from Jewish ways of interpreting scripture. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ellen, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. I'll bet it is. This is just amazing. <laughs> you can cross this off your bucket list now, I'm sure. You're waiting, waiting to be on this, on this podcast, I'm sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad someone's interested in what I might have to say. <laughs> you know, Alan, I think a lot of people are very interested in what you have to say, because here's why. You, you, you're, you're an academic who also engages very practical questions, which at the end of the day, academics have too. We all have practical questions. And... Here's the thing that people struggle with, and the reason why I got into Old Testament scholarship to begin with, because people don't really know what to do with it, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of practical implications for people's lives. It's sort of the stuff you skip except for a few Psalms, maybe some Proverbs. But I think your opinion's a little bit different than that, isn't it? It is, and I'm, I'm actually surprised that you begin by saying maybe some psalms, maybe some proverbs, because in my experience, those are probably the last places most folks would go. But I think they're great choices because those are two of the most accessible parts of the Old Testament, um, although not necessarily the most familiar parts. Right. At least you don't have those weird names and battles to deal with. Well, that's true. But... Let me give you an example of um, of the practical value of the Old Testament. I was speaking a few years ago now to a large group of uh, church women in South Carolina, and I was writing on the Book of Proverbs for my own work at that time, and so I decided to talk to them about Proverbs. And when they met me at the airport, they were all excited, and they had balloons, and they were really <laughs> quite thrilled. I and never I, get balloons when I speak. I get bread. Well, I've, I've only gotten them once. And, so, <laughs> and I said to them, after this sort of excited welcome, I said, I don't think you understand. I'm going to be talking about the book of Proverbs. And they said, oh, no, this is so great. We've been reading it and finding all our friends in there. (laughs) 
Uh, and a sort of similar experience, I was teaching a group of two or three hundred women at, in South Sudan, village women. And I, this was some years later, and I said to them, let's look at the wisdom of the Israelite village and see how it fits in with the wisdom of the Sudanese village. And that was exactly what they needed to draw the connection between their own lives and the Old Testament. So starting with the point of connection with them right, and drawing the Bible into that rather than just sort of throwing the Bible at them. Well, to give them some of the some of the words of the Bible, I mean, the Proverbs are little poems. So give them a couple of lines of biblical poetry and say, does this ring any bells with you? Um, and I think a lot of the problem that people have with the Old Testament is they think that it comes to them from a world that has no points of connection with their own. Mm-hmm. and that they need to know a lot about that world world that they do not know. Well, can you talk about the balance of, because I, I actually would know a lot of people who I feel like maybe unfairly appropriate the Old Testament, where they kind of make it too practical as though the text is really written for them and about them in that day and miss the original context and the import. So I hear there's maybe the pendulum of, it's completely inaccessible to us, inaccessible. We don't know how to relate to it. And then the other side of that is we just kind of appropriate it however we want. We bring it in culturally and make it mean kind of whatever we want it to. How do you help people, kind of everyday people, balance that? Could you give me an example of what you have in mind? Well, for for example, um, in the prophets, one common, really common thing in my tradition growing up was you just uh, take out a passage of the prophets and you make it apply to today. And so when Isaiah or Jeremiah talk about certain plagues, then we, that clearly means we're talking about helicopters because there's a certain person in the white house and we're in the end times. And so there was no sense of kind of understanding what it was originally about in the original audience. It was just appropriating that text. And so um, is that a decent example? That's helpful, thank you, because it's a different, that's a, a different way of using the, the Bible than I'm personally familiar with. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can be thankful for that, too, I think, Helen. <laughs> so would you say you don't often run into people who are sort of take the Old Testament out of context and can wield it any way they, they wish? You don't find that too often? No. Not in, no, not in the parts of the church that I inhabit. Do you find them ig- uh, ignoring or being unfamiliar with the Old Testament? Yeah, you, yeah, yes, you mentioned my speaking engagements, but okay. um, I'm I'm a cradle Episcopalian, so I'm just you know sort of ho hum, mainstream Protestant, and in my world, the default option is is. Again, I'm an Episcopalian, so remember, I come from a world in which a lot of people think we have the Book of Common Prayer. We don't need the Bible at all. But if we need the Bible, we certainly don't need the Old Testament. Uh, So I assume, when I start teaching, that most people don't know the Old Testament, certainly would not be able to pull something out of Isaiah um, and uh, draw an analogy. Um, And, but on the whole, 
they don't think it's really interesting. Um, and so that's a different experience than the one you've just suggested. But so there might be a different remedy that would be needed in each instance. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is I tried to get people interested in the first place, but I think it might also work with the kind of situation you're talking about. I try to help people get a sense of what it was like to be in that world. And I do that most commonly in a couple of different ways. One, when I'm teaching, I usually keep a map up behind me. So a map that shows Israel as the little pin dot on the unfolding scroll of empire. Because I think that there is a sort of knee-jerk sense that Israel was the biggest thing going and that Israel was the, um, was a, a major player, mover, and shaker in the world. Whereas, in fact, Israel was, for most of the biblical period, it was under the thumb of a major empire. And so, in that sense, Israel was not very much like us at all. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, when one of the reasons I enjoy teaching in East Africa so much is that I'm speaking to people, in most cases, who come from agrarian cultures like Israel, who come from war-torn cultures like Israel, who themselves understand being moved and shaken by world powers other than their own country, again, like Israel. Right. So those are some of the ways that I try to help people begin to see what the experience of the ordinary Israelite was like through most of the biblical period. And I think that would also, I mean, the kinds of people that Jared was referencing before, uh, introducing them to the world of the Bible as best as we can, at least the general historical outlines like you just mentioned, that can reorient people, I think, in a very positive way to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, contexts are, are you know, this kind of disenfranchisement of nations is still going on. And you can connect with this on a level that maybe you'd be surprised about if you're only looking at verses that apply to me and my life rather than looking at the big picture. Yeah. So learning something about content and context is important. Yes, and I think that the practical value of the Old Testament is that it speaks to us as people in community. Mm. Um, in complex political situations. And when I say political situations, I mean political in sort of maybe the lowercase sense, everything from family politics up 
to village politics, up to national politics, up to international politics. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's, that is the condition in which all humans live their lives. Right. So I think that the Old Testament, that's true in the New Testament as well, that it addresses us as members of communities. But maybe in part because of our habits of reading, we tend to reduce the New Testament to Jesus and little me. Yes. I think that's harder to do if you have your wits, wits about you when you're reading the Old Testament. Well, and I think that may be, I think you're putting your finger on something very important. That may be one reason why the Old Testament does not seem to have practical value because it really can't be reduced to you know, Jesus and little me, because there's, there's too much history going on in the Old Testament. There's too much story, there's too much narrative, which is why, again, in my experience, which is different than yours, this is why people latch on to Psalms that I think are more, that are easier to appropriate personally, because they don't mention specifics of history. They just mention oppressors or, oh, God, why have you abandoned me? That sort of thing. And people can connect with that. But they're missing a lot, too, aren't they? Yes. But I think the instinct to begin with the Psalms is a really good one. Yeah. Because the Psalms are formulated in human language. They're formulated, as you suggested, to come straight out of our mouths they're the only part of the Bible that's really um, us speaking directly to God rather mm -hmm. than someone speaking about God in narrative form or God speaking to us in the prophets. So they're sort of prepackaged for, for our consumption, you might say, or our use. Um, and so the Psalms, I probably preach on the Psalms one out of three times I preach, maybe more often. Um, but you also have to remember that the Psalms are, for someone, for the biblical writers themselves, they are embedded in story. And of course, we have the best indication of that is the superscriptions to the right. Psalms, which embed them mostly in the story of David when they are put in a particular story. But that's illustrative, I think, rather than meant to be confining of how we can use them. So often when I am preaching a psalm or teaching a psalm, I'll think, who, who would be saying this? Um, who in the Bible might be saying this? Or who in our world now might be saying this? And if it is a, if it's a psalm of lament, a psalm spoken by someone oppressed by a powerful enemy. The person saying that might not be me, uh, might not be someone in my particular social world, but and might even not be someone I know personally. Um, but if you look for the person for whom this speaks, then I think that also expands your prayer life mm -hmm. and your sense of Christian community. Right, as it has for 2,000 years, right? 
mean, the, yeah. the Psalms have been very powerful. Well, you know, here, here's another thing, though, Ellen, that uh, talking in terms of difficulties people have with the practical value of the Old Testament, you do have a lot of dark corners in the Old Testament, uh, more so than perhaps in the New, namely, you know, the 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 Deuteronomist, the, the, the writer of, of, of Deuteronomy, and then the history that goes after that, like in Joshua and Judges and, and Samuel and Kings, you know, the only good Canaanite is a dead Canaanite. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. What, you know, the, what is the practical value of something like, you know, the command to kill everyone and take their land? We have to okay. deal with the text. We can't ignore it. We have to deal with it. But what, what, what do we do with that? I mean, I hate to put you on the spot like that, but what, what do we do with something like that? Well, this is, this is most of what I do as a teacher. And I think that this is where it gets difficult and becomes impossible to read the Old Testament unless you do know something about history. And so, for instance, by the time Deuteronomy is written, presumably 7th century, the Canaanites were dead. Um, And the the Perizzites, the Hittites, and so on, they are not real people anymore. They are names from, um, from antiquity. And so... What again? This is where you need to have the map up in front of you as you're reading, and recognize that in the seventh century, the people that Israel was up against were not Canaanites; it was the Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, who is the threatening enemy? Uh, the enemy that threatens to separate Israel from its God, that's, that is not the peoples in the land. It's the Assyrians who are threatening to take over the land. So I see the book of Deuteronomy in its historical context as resistance literature. Mm-hmm. It's the little people who are being strengthened to believe that God chose them out of love and that they can dare to stand against an empire Mm -hmm. unimaginably greater than the military power Israel could possibly summon. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. 
And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So it would, it would be fair to say that, you know, in a couple of places, at least in Deuteronomy in chapter 7 and chapter 20, you have these commands to kill the Canaanites. That might be motivational, if that's maybe a good word, to uh, be able to resist the influence and the influx of this major superpower of the time, the Assyrians. Am I hearing you right? When I'm yeah. That? Okay. yeah, I would say that. See, here's this is something that might be totally lost on you, Ellen, but it's not on the people that we deal with. Here, here's an example where it's good that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, right? Mm-hmm. Because in Deuteronomy, right. if this is seventh century, there's a whole historical context within which something like this really can be understood very profit profitably rather than being as much of a problem as if this is commanded from days of old of God to actually do it and then they did it. This is, this is talking about something entirely different, almost uh, maybe code is the wrong word, but in... I think code is the right word. Okay, great, yeah. yeah. I think this is, this is the hidden, Deuteronomy is the hidden transcript, in a sense, of an oppressed people. These are people who may not be able to say exactly what they have on their mind out there in public, mm-hmm. um, but they are finding a way to communicate for those who have ears to hear. Right. And also, same, go ahead, go ahead, Ellen. At the same time, I don't want to whitewash Deuteronomy um, because already within the Bible, people are taking issue with that. So you have, I mean, the, you can't intermarry also Deuteronomy. You can't intermarry with Moabites. Uh, no, Moabites are not allowed within the congregation till the 10th generation. And then you have the book of Ruth mm-hmm. saying, excuse me, David's great grandmother is a Moabite. 
Yeah. And she is a model of the Israelite, of the perfect practice of chesed, which the covenant loyalty, which is the virtue that Deuteronomy holds up. And in Jonah, God likes the Assyrians. He wants them to repent. Well, I don't know whether God likes the Assyrians, <laughs> but he, at least he has time for the Assyrians. <laughs> well, he doesn't want to just wipe them off the face of the no. earth like in Nahum, for example. Exactly. Exactly. So you have this, another, see, another dimension, this is an important dimension I think you're bringing out, Ellen. It's not just the historical context of something like this that might help us understand the practical value of it, but it's even the inner biblical dialogue about some of these things that also models something very practical for us theologically for how we work our own theology through maybe dialogue and even debate. And disagreement. And disagreement. And, and also recognizing that a community that exists over a period of time, which is to say a tradition, has to learn to live with disagreement. Um, these things are not, these debates are not finally resolved. The Old Testament doesn't end by saying, okay, these several things you need to get really clear on. It's the argument goes on. Uh, and I think this is something, I think this is actually something that Christians can learn from Jewish ways of interpreting scripture. Because I think Christians tend to read the Old Testament as a series of doctrinal statements. Yes, they do. And, <laughs> and we want to be sure that we have the right bottom line on each one of those doctrines. Uh, whereas Jews, I think, read Bible as the beginning of an argument. And as you know, Jews like a good argument. Yes. Um, and so they have a more relaxed attitude in a certain way. Uh, I would also say they have more fun with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not afraid to disagree with each other about what it means. They're not even afraid to disagree with the text. And they're not, they're not afraid, finally, to disagree even with God on certain points, or at least consider that that might be a possibility. Mm -hmm. Which is the, a biblical tradition itself. Which is the, I'm so, sorry. That, yeah, that's also a biblical tradition, taking God to task. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So in a certain sense, I would say Jews take the Bible more seriously often than Christians do, take it seriously enough that they're willing to disagree. So we're going to take a minute break to talk about our sponsor today, Baker Academic. They're a publisher that's committed to furthering understanding within the context of the Christian faith. And we mentioned a few episodes ago that they published Pete's Inspiration and Incarnation, Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. But one of their latest books, which we want to highlight today, is Matthew Bates's Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And we've talked a lot about faith on this podcast, like what is it, what isn't it? 
And Bates, in, in his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, does a really good job articulating why allegiance might be a good definition for faith, at least as it's presented in some of the New Testament. The book also includes a study guide with questions for groups. So if you're looking for the next book for a group study, consider Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. Find it and more at bakeracademic.com ends. Do you have any thoughts, Ellen, on that, on why, what is it about Christianity that makes it difficult or, or, or less common to approach the Bible, and let's say that Jewish, more dialogical debate kind of way. What happened? Well, I think one major thing that happened is that Christians in the post-biblical period began doing theology by issuing doctrinal statements. And so the way of doing theology was to write discursive prose. Jews never did theology in that sense. Um, Jews do theology by telling stories. And those stories resemble the form of the Bible itself. And you can tell one story, and then you can tell another story, and those stories may take different approaches, um, may come out at different places, and express different points of view. That's a more playful way of doing theology than the way Christians have normally done it. But I think it's also a way of doing theology that keeps bringing you back to the language and the form of the biblical text. Uh, yeah, I think that last part is very important, too, the, the language and the form of the biblical text and to showing Scripture respect by following in that trajectory, I guess. But you see, the question still, I, I still wonder, though, I mean, I have my own answers, but I could be totally wrong about why that doctrinal reading ever started to begin with. Is, is it simply a matter of like Greek philosophical influence? Is it, is it something other than that? Is it, this is what happens when Gentiles get a hold of the Hebrew scripture. You know, is, is it something as simple as that? I, I don't think it's in the Jesus movement itself. I don't think it's in Paul. It seems to be something that happened a little bit later. Yes. And, this goes way beyond anything I really know for sure. So, well, let's just make things up. That's fine, Ellen. Nobody cares. Go ahead. Um, you, I mean, and I think it, re, it has remained alive in certain places um, to this day. So I think it's something that has, in more traditional cultures, continues, as I say, to this day. I mean, in, in Africa, people do theology by telling stories. Um, and those stories often interact with the biblical text. Um, I think one place that there was a kind of parting of the ways, I think the 
there's not just one place, but one that there was, it was in what, maybe 12th century Europe when monastic theology begins to be supplanted as a major discourse in the church by scholastic theology. Hmm. So the recognized theologians are not monks um, and or wise women. Uh, the recognized theologians are, um, are professors, basically, who mm -hmm. are writing treatises. And so, and that, that I would say maybe turned Western Christianity definitively in the direction of that kind of doctrinal theology. Not to say it didn't exist before, obviously it existed before, but it also existed in communities where there were very learned people um, and they were some members of the community, but they were not all members of the community and where the community did much of its interaction and much of its um, much of its reflection on scripture in the context of liturgy, preaching, mm -hmm. and maybe telling stories in the monastic refectory. Mm -hmm. how, how connected, you know, as you think about, as you reflected on maybe how culturally we've done this poorly as Christians, what are ways that storytelling has now influenced you as you think about the Bible, as you do theology, um, and as you write about certain topics that are in the biblical text? How has storytelling influenced that for you? Well, the main way I guess I participate in that is through preaching. Somebody said something really surprising to me uh, a few days ago. They were asking me, to give a lecture at a conference on preaching. And so I said, what would you like me to do? <laughs> so this is down the road. Yeah. Uh, and so I said, what would you like me to speak about? And the answer was, I would really like to hear why you still write sermons when you can write books. Hmm. I thought that I thought that was quite a remarkable question. No one had ever put it that starkly to me before. What that said to me was that the person who was asking me, and this is an organizer of a conference on preaching, and I believe that's one of her primary jobs. Uh, what that suggested to me is that she had accepted a judgment, which I think is widespread in the academy, that writing books is more important than writing sermons. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a wrong judgment. And, and so the primary way that I actually find out how I think theologically is through preaching. Um, and in when I had my first interview with my doctor father, Brevard Childs, at, at Yale University, um, when I had my sort of intake interview as a doctoral student, I said to him, you need to know that I preach and I'm not going to give it up as a bad habit. 
and, <laughs> and he said, well, I think that's great. Right. And, I would imagine he would say that, yes. <laughs> and at the time, I sort of took that for granted because I thought it was great. Um, and as the years have gone on, I've realized I was probably talking to the only major scholar in my field, you know, world-class scholar in my field, who would have responded, I think that's great. We need to make room for that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how then did you, I mean, just following on that a little bit, you're in Yale, not a bad school, a lot of academic stuff happening there. You're studying Bible and you have this, this clear practical preaching, storytelling energy about the Bible, but yet you're learning a lot that most people would think is somewhat hostile to that. How did you, or did you, or are you still working on how you keep those two worlds together? If that's even the right way to ask the question. Yeah. Um, I've never experienced them as two different worlds. And I've never experienced my academic study as hostile to my participation in the church. Now, again, location is not incidental here. So my, um, my part of the church is not threatened by the idea that Deuteronomy reached its final form in the 7th century. So I didn't have to make a choice between the affirmations I make in a church setting and the affirmations I make as a scholar, and I never have had to. Um, I remember as a... um, I taught at Yale after I was a doctoral student there, and I remember a sermon that I preached on the book of Job at my church in New Haven, in the Episcopal Church, economically um, and, and socially mixed and racially mixed congregation. And after I'd preached a sermon, as I say, on Job, someone came up to me uh, someone who I'm pretty sure did not have any college education and I'm not sure had completed high school, someone considerably older than I was. And it was a sort of long sermon for Episcopalians. It was probably about 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you the Baptists are getting just warmed up with that. And at the end of that sermon, she came up to me and I was a little nervous. I didn't know what she was going to say. And she said, well, that was worth all those years in school, wasn't it? (laughs) And I thought, okay, we're on the same page. That if, for me, the important question as a teacher, as a preacher, and I don't make a lot of distinction between those two things, the important question I have to address is, so what? If this is what scripture says, and my work is to try to make it clear what scripture says and why I think it frames what it says in that way, then so what? And her response to me suggested that she could answer that question, so what? Why should I care? 
I think that's a question we should all be asking, frankly, and, and we don't ask enough. And that's part of the scholastic academic approach that you mentioned before, that the so what question, if it's asked, it's never on a personal spiritual level, it's asked on maybe an academic level. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And the only thing I would want to say to qualify that slightly is to be sure that when we say it isn't asked, or it should be asked and answered on a personal spiritual level, I agree with that, but that does not mean to reduce it to a privatistic reading. Yes, yes. That personal is my personhood in community, um, and spiritual is the life of this body, Koram Deo, in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And so that includes our economic lives, our political lives, um, our material existence. All of those things are included when we speak about personal and spiritual. So talk more about that intersection, Ellen, between, you know, we have the life of the church community. There's very practical things that we're wrestling with economically, socially, politically. And then you have this text. And so going back to the idea that the text feels so distant, what are strategies you use for helping Help, help, helping people see the relevance that this, the Bible speaks to our particular socio and economic place, our particular political moment. How do you help? Because well, sometimes if you just pick up the Bible and look at it, the average person wouldn't maybe be able to make those connections. So what are ways you've been able to do that? I guess I'll say two things. One, in a sense, my work as a philologian, um, a philologist and my work as an historian. Um, philologically, I I care that the Bible is written in Hebrew, but the part I am primarily responsible for is written primarily in Hebrew. And so I try as a teacher to remind my students of that frequently. Um, and help them, as a teacher and also as a preacher, help them understand what the particular words are trying to convey. Uh, and very often I find that if I just open up one word, if it's an important word, then people begin to get some insight into a culture. Um, so, to pick one that's exceedingly common in the Bible, I mentioned it before, chesed, um, which is often translated steadfast, love, um, loving kindness. We tend to read that somewhat sentimentally. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and there isn't really a good translation for it. I have used, in some of the things I've written, I've used covenant loyalty. Um, I've used 
acts of good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a reminder that the quintessential Israelite virtue, which is practiced on both horizontal levels between God and humankind and the on the vertical level between God and humankind and on the horizontal level amongst Israelites, but also uh, among people who are not Israelites. Ruth is a practitioner of Chesed. Um, that it's a reminder that this is this is a practice of daily life. It's not just a feeling. So mm-hmm. that's that's one example. But I, I do this commonly when I preach or teach. I focus on a few words and try to help people. I think of myself as a sort of elementary language teacher. In yes. <laughs> Even when I'm not teaching beginning Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps to move people into a thought world different from their own. I would, as an historian, I remember once one of my students saying to me, do you think it would be a really good idea if over Christmas we memorized the names and the order and the dates of all the kings of Israel? And I said, I think that would be a great idea, and then you could teach me because I don't know them in order by all of their dates, Um, which is to say I don't think it's the most important thing. I think the kind of history that is most important for most people reading the Bible is to know what it was like to be an Israelite, to be a Jew in the village. And that didn't change a lot over centuries. And so it it was to be a farmer. Even if you lived in Jerusalem or Bethlehem, you were farming fields immediately outside the walls of your small city or town. Um, It was to live in immediate proximity with your animals. It was to live on fragile land that if you didn't tend it carefully, your children and certainly your grandchildren would have nothing to eat. It was to be hungry much of the time. It was to be malnourished, as, as we would consider it. It was to live under the thumb of empire. I mean, these are some of the things. It was to live in a situation where the individual counted for very little and no major decision was made except in the context of a family or a village. That's what it meant to be an ordinary person in biblical time. And such a a different way of living to state the obvious than what we're used to. And so much of the disinterest perhaps in the Old Testament for Christians is because we we don't always have direction, let's say, to do that hard work of getting out of our own heads and out of our own experiences and looking at the world through different eyes. Maybe, maybe that's a way of putting what you're trying to do with your students and when you preach. Yeah, I would say that's true. But, but I also want to say that 
it is it is hard work in a sense because it's continually reminding us that the way that we live in the world is fundamentally different from the way most people through most of history and even today have lived. Mm -hmm. So you need to keep remembering that. That's right. On the other on the other hand, it's the basic elements of that life, as I've said, don't change greatly in the biblical world over centuries or millennia. And many, many people still have contact with that world. So including in our own country. So I wrote a book called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, an agrarian reading of the Bible. And as I wrote, worked toward that book over a period of about 20 years, I did a great deal of speaking in rural communities, uh, farming communities in this country and in other parts of the world. And I would, including East Africa, um, Indonesia, the United Kingdom, again, many parts of this country. And I would lay out the basics of what it was to be an Israelite and the kind of vulnerability people felt on a daily basis. And I would say, does this sound familiar? And I don't think ever I got a response that was not, oh, yes, mm -hmm. very familiar to us. And we had no idea the Bible spoke so directly to our own vulnerabilities. Well, Ellen, we're coming to the end of our time, but maybe one question as we kind of got very practical there at the end of this relevance, what would be kind of some, some departing words for, for someone who feels overwhelmed by the task of reading the Old Testament and, and reading it well? What advice would you leave them with as we kind of wrap up today? Um, I would say look for look for the ordinary people uh, look for their stories look for their words try to imagine what prompted that way of looking at the world mm -hmm. and often uh, it's given you in the story um, I would also say Remember that, look for the women, because remember that the women are often the minor characters in the Bible, but they stand for all of the ordinary people. David is not an ordinary person. So if you only know David's story or Saul's story or Moses' story, for that matter, you're not seeing the ordinary people. And so you need to be, of course, the lives of ordinary people are shaped by the decisions of leaders. So you, you need to know, know their stories, but don't think that's the whole story. Mm. Well, thank you very much. I mean, ending with that is very appropriate as, you know, the name of this podcast is The Bible for Normal People. And what oh. I heard you say is, 
keep an eye out for the normal people in the Bible. We, our eye tends to be drawn toward the major characters, but the minor characters have a lot to teach us. Yeah. That's I think that's exactly right. And thank you for just the work you do to teach us in the church. I think it's always great when we have uh, people who have one foot in the academy, one foot in the church, and are very passionate about that vocation. So thank you very much for that. And uh, Pete, do you have any final words? No, just thank you. This has been fun. Learned a lot. It's been fun for me too. We could have kept it on for another two hours, but that's not going to work. This is a podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks, and to you. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Two books we didn't mention in the beginning but are important of Ellen Davis's are Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament, and Reading Israel's Scripture as Our Own, both really good introductions to some of the theological um, and interpretation work on the Old Testament that she does. So make sure you check those out. You can check us out online as well. I'm on Twitter at jbias. And I'm also on Twitter at Pete Enns and also on Facebook at Peter Enns. I invite you to... Visit my website, thebibleformnormalpeople.com, and you can also see my books there and speaking schedule and sign up for my newsletter, which is the most exciting thing ever, I promise, and all that sort of stuff. But most importantly, uh, you can join the conversations that we're having there on our on the blog uh, that sort of continue the kinds of discussions we're having here. Yeah, thanks again, and we hope you join us next time. <laughs>